Warm Regards is supported by Arcadia Power, the first company to give you a clean energy choice on your monthly power bill. Arcadia's online platform provides clean energy options to homeowners and renters in all 50 states. Anyone who pays a utility bill is eligible to sign up and start using clean energy at home at no extra cost with the free 50% wind energy option. Reduce your impact and get four free LED light bulbs sent to your door when you sign up at arcadiapower.com slash warmregards. That's arcadiapower.com, A-R-C-A-D-I-A, arcadiapower.com slash warmregards. Arcadia Power, help to change the way America consumes energy. This is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the scientists, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Andy Revkin in New York's Hudson Valley, filling in for our regular lead host, Eric Holthouse. This week, we're talking to David Gelber, the co-creator and executive producer of Years of Living Dangerously, a TV series exploring the world's intertwined climate and energy challenges. This is the second season of the show, which is now on National Geographic Channel. Good morning, David. Hi, Andy. And with us, as always, is my co-host, Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. I've got to kind of get off the subject of TV for a minute and and just uh, note that I'm really sorry to hear of the death of your colleague, Jacqueline. Gordon Hamilton, a pretty amazing glaciologist, uh, died out on Antarctica's ice sheet doing the hard work of climate science, which doesn't always happen in like some supercomputer lab or sitting at a desk. And it's just a terrible loss. And it kind of illustrates that... um, the the, uh, the lengths that people are willing to go to to try to clarify what's going on. Yeah, thank you, Andy. Um, we're still kind of reeling here at the Climate Change Institute, but there's been such an international outpouring of support that just really speaks to, you know, the importance of the work that that Gordon was doing and it, and and the work he was doing. It, it, you know, it's it's interesting. Just last week, he was talking about how um, to a colleague of mine about how this work on the crevasses in particular um, is uh, in, in the crevasse region is really rare. We know so little about those zones because precisely because they're so dangerous. And, um, and so it's, it's just kind of dr- driven home in a, in a really personal way this week. And, you know, he was a beloved colleague to many and a, a mentor and a fantastic teacher and advisor. And uh, he, he will be greatly missed. Yeah. And uh, journalists had relied on him as well as a really uh, trusted guide to um, what's going on out there. So we all miss him. So so now back to uh, the main subject, years of living dangerously, speaking of the realities that we are living somewhat dangerously, even despite all the progress civilization has made in the last couple of hundred years. Uh, David, uh, I first kind of learned about what you were up to five years ago. I think you got in touch with me when you were just in the early stages of uh, diving into this, and you had come from a much more conventional world of investigative reporting and kind of a TV magazine, sixty minutes stuff. You know where there usually was kind of a, it's you know clear villain heroes and uh, storylines that had that kind of classic journalistic frame. And, and here you you and Joel Bach and others, you, you know, you've d- dived into kind of the worst possible story in the sense of, of its scope and scale. And and um, what. Did, well, I guess maybe the first question is, what drew you into this for the to begin with? Well, Andy, part of it was, you know, over the years reading the incredible work that you did at, at the Times and on Dot Earth. And I, I really mean that. I mean, you, you continue to just do amazing stuff. I mean, I, I thought that some of your posts recently were 
really worth talking about, and I'm going to make sure that um, that I steer the conversation to some of the work that you've done recently. Anyway, how did I get into this? Well, I mean, I, you know, as you say, I was working at 60 Minutes for 25 years, mostly as Ed Bradley's uh, senior producer, and uh, which I loved. It was it was a great time. And then uh, my associate producer, uh, my kind of junior partner at 60 Minutes, uh, Joel Bach, uh, was sort of on me uh, to do stories about climate change for 60 Minutes. And we did a couple of stories. And the more we did the more we sort of realized that, my God, this this absolutely is the biggest story out there. There's just nothing that touches this. I mean, you could argue, well, how about nuclear war, I guess. But um, And, you know, we, we became kind of nags um, <laughs> and nudges with our bosses at 60 Minutes and said, yeah, we really want to do this story. So, yeah, but, you know, we, we, we don't have specialists at 60 Minutes. So, so you got to do a story about a knuckleball pitcher, too, or you know something, something else. Um, and I'm not at all against doing stories about knuckleball pitchers, but I had done a lot of those over the years, um, uh, as well as the good guy, bad guy story that we used to do. Oh, and by the way, Andy, there, there are some, some good guys and bad guys in this field as well. Oh, absolutely. You know? <laughs> I mean, haven't gotten totally away from that. In fact, we have um, our first episode, which airs actually twice, <laughs> which airs twice. It airs this Sunday at, um, at 8 o'clock on National Geographic, and then again on, on its regular time at Wednesday at 10 o'clock Eastern time. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a good guy, bad guy theme in that story because, um, it, well, David Letterman does a story about India, but Cecily, which is great, uh, Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live does a story um, about the utility companies, these are the bad guys, by the way, just in case you wouldn't have guessed. Um, the big utility companies in some parts of the country are doing everything they possibly can um, to screw solar companies, to, to basically make it difficult or harder um, for individuals to put solar panels on their roof. This is not a good thing. Hmm. Um, and they're doing it through you know, devious tactics, including as the story in the New York Times uh, I guess they wanted to beat us to it. Um, <laughs> has a piece today about about uh, Florida, where the where the utilities um, drew up this completely what can I call this deceptive? I guess is the word uh, uh, a referendum proposition question on the ballot for November eighth, um, which purports to be pro solar but actually isn't. And um, the Miami Herald found a. Um, uh, a, a statement by uh, I guess found an audio tape with one of the guys who was pushing for the, one of the utility guys who was pushing for this, uh, you know, acknowledging the, the deceptiveness of it. I mean, the, 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 the just that the flagrant fraud. I mean, I guess this is the kind of election we're, you know, political time we're living in. But yeah. people in Florida who think they're voting for solar may not be because of this fake. Um, proposition. And we did a story, Cecily Strong did a great story about what's happening in Nevada, what's happening in Florida on utilities. So I'm not out of the good guy, bad guy business yet. This reminds me of all those uh, stories of, um, you know, states that are charging people for installing solar panels or charging them extra taxes for driving fuel efficient vehicles or, or clean it, you know, cleaner vehicles. Right. It's just, it's like penalizing people for making good choices. Well, and you got in, you got kind of got toward one of the other questions I was going to ask, which was, um, Pretty early on, uh, almost from the beginning, you settled on um, most of the guides to these stories. Uh, you know, whether you call them a reporter or the on-air person is a celebrity more than a hardened journalist or an Ed Bradley. And 
I, I, I think I understand some of the thinking behind that, but maybe you could get get at um, why you made that choice and how it's worked out. You know, you had this is the second round, so obviously um, the, the the choice has been reinforced. Well, I, I think it's worked out really well. I mean, uh, you know, obviously our um, our intention was to spread the word by getting people who would who would draw an audience. I mean, you know, pretty obvious um, that we wanted to do that, and um, and we didn't. You know, we were pretty selective, and we we wanted to find people who cared about the issue. I remember having a, a lunch with Don Cheadle, one of our correspondents. I'm going to call him correspondents, even if your journalistic uh, uh, hairs get uh, on end because I'm doing that. But anyway, uh, so Cheadle said, look, you know, I'm not an expert on this stuff. And we said, Don, that's great. We don't want you to be an expert. We want you to be someone who really wants to learn more about this and who's curious the way lay people you know, intelligent lay people are curious about the problem of climate change. And what's different about the way that we do these stories from the way we did stories at 60 Minutes, well, one way that's different is that each of these correspondents, uh, whether it's Sigourney Weaver or Jack Black or Dave Letterman or the others, um, they go on a kind of a journey and, and they learn things as they go. And, and they really do. I mean, um, and some of the people that we've worked with this year, I, I'm thinking of Letterman and, and Ty Burrell from Modern Family, uh, Brad Whitford from West Wing, um, and Jack Black, um, you know, have said that this is really a life-changing experience for them to, to do stories about climate and what climate's doing to us and what some of the, the solutions might be. Um, and we've tried to incorporate in each piece solution elements because, you know, I mean, as, as you know better than I do, we're really in a race against time on climate. And, you know, um, Jacqueline, I think that you would agree that, that the consequences of climate change are accelerating much faster than, than scientists expected they would 10, 20 years ago. Uh, at, you know, at the same time, a lot of the possible solutions are coming online faster than we might have expected. Um, so we're, we're kind of, you know, um, framing this as a race against time, and, and we have solutions and the correspondence. And for the most part, it's worked out really well. Some of the correspondents are amazingly good at this. I mean, are every bit as good as 60 Minutes people were. I mean, I'm thinking about Brad Whitford. Um, Joshua Jackson from the, from the Affair does one of our absolute best stories about ocean acidification. It's a stunning story. And he's a very smart guy, and he knows how to ask follow-up questions, which is, uh, you know, the the, the signal talent that uh, 60 Minutes correspondents have to have. Right. Um, and, and some of these folks do as well, but they don't pretend to be omniscient about the subject, as you know, a 60 Minutes correspondent might might give the impression of being. Well, that that actually leads into a question that I was interested in, especially as a scientist. You know, I, I've dealt with journalists, and 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 you know the 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 power of the media to communicate um, science in an effective way to the public is something that, you know, I, it interests me greatly um, in terms of just general science literacy and and outreach. Um, you know, because as a publicly funded scientist, I feel like I have a mandate to get the story of my work out there. Um, but so my question is, you know, it's it's an interesting format um, in in the years of living dangerously. I mean, what I one thing I love about it is that you do you know humanize the scientists and you know show that the passion behind their work and, and what really drives them to, to do the work that we do. And, but it's, it's also interesting having these sort of like celebrity correspondents. Right. And so I, I was just kind of curious from like a, a nerdy 
behind the scenes kind of perspective, like what's it like, what's it like to like, how do you decide what scientists to talk to and, and whether to put us on camera and are scientists okay with having their work translated by a, um, you know, by, by like an actor or someone like that. And like, does that like, I kind of want to get into like, not necessarily the gossipy side of that, but just what is, what does that look like in practice? Well, you know, there are a lot of scientists that, that I wouldn't put on camera because in their mind's eye, they're seeing their department chairman, uh, and they want to make absolutely sure that they're not going to do anything or say anything that might uh, threaten their tenure or their their scientific reputation. I mean, they're, uh, you know, as you know, um, some scientists are really good communicators and others aren't. Um, and so we're we're pretty careful in in selecting the ones that we do. I mean, we have Jack Black does a story about um, what's happening in Miami, which, as you know, is is really not going to be around forever um, because of sea level rise, um, and forever maybe closer than we imagine. And we had two scientists from the University, University of Miami, Ben Kurtman and uh, Harold Wanless, um, uh, who are, as well as uh, uh, Karen, Karen Bolton, who um, are all really good communicators, you know, and, and, and they were able to, you know, uh, uh, explain things to, to Jack in ways that, uh, that any layperson could understand. Um, I mean, some of this stuff is extremely complicated, and some of it is relatively simple. I mean, the basics of climate science um, are not incomprehensible to to lay people. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think part of it is is having a respect for our audience. I mean, I always thought that one thing about 60 Minutes that was pretty great was that there were clearly a whole bunch of television shows out there that really have no respect for the audience. That 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 you know that are. Uh, we had a guy who ran CBS News for a long time who used to go on vacation and read novels in their original French. But when it came to programming television, I, I, he really tried to dumb stuff down for the, for the, for the you know, ordinary people who watch CBS News. I didn't think much of that guy. Um, and, you know, but 60 Minutes was a, you know, a show that, that didn't you know, dumb things down. I mean, it had a respect for its audience. And we're, we're trying to, to do that. At the same time, we're really trying to be entertaining. Um, and Joel and I learned a lot about doing entertaining television at 60 Minutes. And one of the things that we, well, two of the things that we learned was, I remember once telling Don Hewitt, the executive producer, founder of 60 Minutes, that I wanted to do a story about acid rain. And he said, Gelber, he said, we don't do stories about acid <laughs> rain. We do stories about people who do something about acid rain. Um, and, that, you know, we've sort of taken that, uh, that axiom of, of storytelling. I mean, we, we won't do a story if it's all only about a scientific issue, but if there's somebody who's doing something about, about a political or scientific problem, we'll tell it. And it's always good, you know, just from the standpoint of, of consumers of, of stories, it's good when the story has an uncertain outcome, because if you know from the beginning how it's going to go, uh, it's kind of hard to stick with it. Um, so, so one of the stories that I'm, I'm proudest of and I have to say, you know, we were nervous about Nat Geo because Nat Geo is owned by Fox. And we didn't want to mince words when it came to the climate issue. And I think it's fair to say that the single biggest obstacle to progress on climate is the Republican Congressional Caucus. I mean, we could, you know, we could sort of talk around that. But nonetheless, it seems to me pretty clearly true ever since the uh, the oil folks dumped several hundred million dollars into the congressional election in 2010. And so we decided that we wanted to do a story about how do you talk to Republicans about this issue? 
How do you flip them? And the way we did the story was, this is Brad Whitford's story. Um, there's a guy in, in uh, Philadelphia, a guy who um, made a lot of money in his in business, sold his business 10 years ago, a guy named Jay Butera. And Jay uh, gets up every day and goes to the 30th Street Station, takes the Acela down to Washington, and spends his life and has for the last 10 years knocking on the doors of Republican congressmen, congresspeople, uh, and talking about climate change. And for nine years, he made no headway at all. This, This past year, he's flipped about 12 of them. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Arcadia Power. If it only took you three minutes to ensure your home was using clean versus dirty energy, would you do it? Well, here's your chance. Arcadia Power is an online energy company giving anyone who pays the utility bill in the U.S. the choice to use clean energy. Arcadia's platform is available to homeowners and apartment dwellers in all 50 states, and it costs nothing extra to sign up and match your electricity usage with clean energy from wind farms across the country. Reduce your impact and support wind farms while receiving a better, more modern energy experience. Arcadia provides a personalized energy dashboard to help you track your usage, impact, manage your energy bills, and take advantage of energy-saving tips and efficient products to help lower your bills. Warm Regards listeners will get four free LED light bulbs sent to their door when they sign up at arcadiapower.com slash warmregards. Four free LED bulbs. You can't beat that. Those energy-saving LEDs will help you save 80% on your lighting costs. If you're in support of a cleaner, healthier future, this is a no-brainer. Sign up today at arcadiapower.com slash warmregards. That's arcadiapower, A-R-C-A-D-I-A, power.com slash warmregards to get four free LED light bulbs and make an impact on your energy bill. So, David, I've been writing about this stuff now for close to three decades, and you're into a number of years of living dangerously, literally. Um, One thing I've learned in all that time was too late, belatedly, actually, when I stumbled into the psychological literature, uh, was that information, you know, news, information, what we do, often doesn't matter that people, um, um, their attitudes are pre-existing and um, they filter out stuff that's inconvenient. how do you approach that? I, you know, I really struggle my myself with trying to figure out how to um, sustain um, the storytelling imperative going forward on an issue where often information doesn't matter. Well, you know, I mean, I was really struck by one of your recent uh, posts um, when you talked about everybody blaming the the uh, presidential debate mon- uh, moderators for not raising the climate issue. I, I, I don't think that they were blameless. I think that they, they certainly questions that they might have asked. But you pointed out, and I think very correctly, that even among liberals, I think this comes from Tony Leiserwitz at Yale, that even among liberals, climate change is like number six on their priority list, if I have it right. Didn't used to be even in the top 10, but now it's, you know, it's risen to six. That's the good news. The bad news is that there are five priorities that are higher uh, for liberals, and God knows where it is on the, uh, you know, on the on the priority list of conservatives. Right. So uh, a moderator, uh, a guy like Chris Wallace, can be, you know, excused to some degree for not raising the question when there are even among this self-selected group of climate of the climate concerned, um, you know, not uh, a very high priority on on the issue, not placing a high priority on the issue, and so um, you know. I, I think that 
I mean, I've never been a I've never been a huge fan of divestment, and that's another subject, and I, we don't need to get into that. But what I do think divestment did was to give college kids something to talk about, because your 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 post talked about the fact that people just don't. Dis- I mean, except for all of us fanatics and you know zealots. Um, ordinary people don't, don't talk about this issue very much. Well, college kids have, because, you know, that, that rotten college president or that, um, you know, that, um, uh, that Dean down the hall, um, you know, won't sell their coal stocks at Podunk. Um, and isn't that an outrage? And, um, you know, they had something that they could bond with. So I think that I think that the divestment movement did succeed in creating a consciousness and a and a really a conversation piece, a way to elevate the um, the, the climate issue. What I'm hoping, and you know, it, it it may be completely unrealistic to think this, but that if we could get people talking about the immediate urgency to put a price on carbon, because you know that really is in my opinion anyway, the, the necessary, if not sufficient, uh, solution to this problem. I mean, we've got to do that, you know? And, uh, and so, you know, we tried in a series to, to approach that, that question in a number of different ways. We did a story about some kids, about a kid from Texas Tech of all places, you know, a school that's a farm team for the, for the petroleum industry, uh, who's, a, who's a zealot on carbon pricing. And I think it's a really good and, and interesting and entertaining story, believe it or not. Um, and um, but I mean, so I mean, if, if if we could if we could focus attention on, you know, there are a hundred things to do about climate change. You can buy a Prius. You can eat less meat. You can uh, screw in an LED light bulb. I mean, it, people get lost in that stuff. I mean, all of which I approve of. But um, and even if you want to divest, that's fine with me. I don't, it's okay. I don't think it's. A, I think it's a anyway. Yeah. Get off on that, but um, but I think that if we could focus on on carbon pricing as something that is urgently necessary, you know, there's actually uh, going to be a, a vote in Washington State on on, uh, on the eighth um, on carbon pricing, uh, and you know, which may or may not win, but it's an indication that you can win these. You don't have to wait for Congress to come around. You know, these these are victories that can be won in in places like Maine and Vermont and you know Oregon. And maybe even more mainstream type states, more centrist type states, but um, and, and and we have carbon pricing in you know California right now. Uh, but anyhow, I don't know. Can we do more than chronicle it? Uh, I, I hope so because you know we have to at least hope that we can or, or act as if we can. I mean that's that's what I think uh, everyone's task is on an issue like this. Uh, this is where I, I started a few years ago talking about the need for urgency and patience at the same time. Like, you get up in the morning and it's kind of like kind of like Groundhog Day. I don't know, uh, Jacqueline, if you get that sense uh, as a scientist too, where you just kind of have to keep at it. Yeah. So we know from the paleo record that there can be tipping points in the climate system, and they can be difficult to predict. Um, and Shifting into a new climate regime can have big impacts on the resilience of ecological communities and also human societies. And, you know, so we know that there's there's a sense of urgency that's um, driven by the, the, the data, both the, the paleo data and the growing contemporary data. And, and there's a, a huge field of research right now that's devoted entirely to trying to be able to anticipate those critical transitions in the climate system, looking for early, war- it's like an early warning detection method for biological and, and physical climate systems. 
but you know so that so that speaks to a sense of urgency right so on the one hand there's the part of me that says yes we have to we have to be acting now we have to be doing everything that we can um because you know when a species goes extinct extinction is forever at least until the you know the um ancient dna folks start resurrecting dodos and mammoths but um you know for the most part extinction is forever we can have tipping points that make some parts of the world, you know, uninhabitable for most people. Um, and, and, and that, that conveys a sense of urgency, but at the same time, you know, you also have to respect the fact that people have, you know, other needs, other, you know, those, those five things that are above climate change often involve things like, you know, economic considerations and, you know, just social justice and, and, and the livelihoods that, that people rely on that those basic needs need to be met before they can think about climate change. And you have to respect those priorities that people have and just sort of beating them over the head with this idea that they're not caring about climate more than whether their kids are fed before they go to school or whether those schools are good when the kids get there. Um, it's, 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 it's this entirely different level of, of social science that gets brought into the problem that, you know, I, as a as a physical scientist and a biologist, I'm not trained in psychology or um, sociology, and and I'm having to sort of learn a lot on the fly about about things like effective communication methods and not just throwing more information at people, and just really kind of bringing in some of that cultural competency and um, and that that you know even just social justice knowledge that I'm leveraging. Um, just to to which which then kind of slows slows down that sense of urgency or kind of pushes back along against that in some ways, you know even as at the same time, people are at risk in their everyday lives in terms of climate change too, right? So there's a there's a social urgency as well as a biological urgency. If for example, you know you are affected by air pollution or your your home is going to be flooded, things like that, and so there's this sort of uneven distribution of risk. Um, where most people that I talk to, the risk is kind of far enough down the road that they have these those other five things that you know are right. more important to them, and um, and so yeah, so it's like this weird push and pull beca because I'm a climate scientist, but I'm also a citizen and a human being, and a daughter and a friend, and you know all these other things. Um, so you sort of feel like you're pulled in so many different different directions, and and you you know I mean I just talked in the most recent episode about about energy costs for Mainers. And, um, and I got some flack on that from people who were like, well, people should just move if they, if they can only afford coal yeah. in Maine. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I saw that. That was pretty wild. Yeah. But, but in a way that, that shows that you're, you know, in that side of your life, you are exposed to those energy realities that some idealists kind of, um, don't really build into their understanding of the, why this is a hard issue. Uh, Obama recently in that conversation with Leonardo DiCaprio and someone who's been both on our podcast and in years of living, living dangerously, uh, Kath, um, Catherine Hayhoe, uh, uh, President Obama was stressing the, the importance of acknowledging those, those harder sides of this, that energy inertia is real, that people's uh, concerns there are, are real as well. David, I wanted to just close things out by giving you one last uh, um opportunity to uh, to say w one thing about the show that we don't know yet about uh what's your dream for a capstone episode that would be uh that that you would that you're still hoping for i, mean, I guess there's always the pope or someone uh, down the line and, and or and also just like where can people find the information about it yeah well they can go to our website um yearsoflivingdangerously.com or to our other website theclimatesolution.com um, which is about carbon pricing. Um, 
Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, it's going to be on every Wednesday night at uh, 10 o'clock uh, Eastern time for the next eight weeks, uh, as well as this Sunday night at eight. Um, but I just, you know, uh, want to say that, uh, you know, I think that the thing that I hope for most is that the stories that we do, that, that, we, that we've done about carbon pricing, about the need for people out there to take action on carbon pricing is really the thing that I hope for uh, to come out of this whole series. And Jack, let me just say in response to what you were just saying that, you know, I, I did a radio interview yesterday with uh, uh, with a radio state, AM radio station in Cincinnati. And the guy, you know, said to me, well, what about our coal miners in Southern Ohio? You know, when you talk about all the stuff like carbon pricing and climate change. And, I, you know, I, I really was kind of stopped short a little bit because I do think it's true that right-thinking people on climate change really do need to spend more time thinking about the folks who are disadvantaged, even if it's a short-term disadvantage, by the kind of um, solutions that we're advocating for, for climate change. And I'm hoping that our next president uh, really, and our next Congress, maybe more importantly, takes seriously what doing something about climate is going to mean for people who are poor, uh, people who are stuck in jobs and in dying and carbon intensive industries. Um, I think that'd be, that'd be really a huge improvement over where we are right now. Great. Well, thank you for spending some time with us and uh, we'll certainly be checking out Years of Living Dangerously um, this second season and uh, good luck with it. Um, in the meantime, anyone out there can listen to all of our episodes of our warm regards, warm regards at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and anywhere else podcasts can be found. Also on Twitter at our at our warm regards and Facebook. Be sure to follow us there. Our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you about your story ideas and uh, feedback is always uh, a vital part of journalism and commentary these days. So let us know what you're thinking. Uh, Eric Holthouse will be back to host our, our next episode. For Jacqueline Gill and our producer, Stephen Lacey, I'm Andy Revkin, and this is Warm Regards. We'd like to thank Arcadia Power for supporting Warm Regards. Arcadia's online platform provides clean energy options to homeowners and renters in all 50 states. Anyone who pays a utility bill is eligible to sign up and start using clean energy at home at no extra cost with a free 50% wind option. Reduce your impact and get four free LED light bulbs sent to your door when you sign up at arcadiapower.com slash warm regards. Arcadia Power, help to change the way America consumes energy.